Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor. This time, the battle of the so-called baddies, live! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, welcome to the fourth of our six uh, 2018 live shows. Mm-hmm. As ever, we're giving you a little introduction mm-hmm. to uh, this episode in January of 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was lead to the Hyde Park Book Club, where we had the battle of the so-called baddies between King John and King Richard III. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I remember that. Now, I remember the location very and well. that was the first one that uh, Rue came to. Yeah. Yeah, on the um, on the because um, we recorded each one, we recorded the, uh, the like videoed it, and uh, when I was uploading all those videos, I said the, the first one is the video of Leeds is just Rue's head as we sort of <laughs> investigating the camera, like a sort of you know when they leave um, like out for monkeys, exactly. Yeah, they throw it into the cage. You just see a monkey's great big <laughs> eye or something. Yeah, funny little fella, uh, and he was great, wasn't he? Just went to sleep. You did, yeah. Just yeah, nice old sleep. Starts telling the story or something. Yeah. Or, but he took to calling you uh, by this point of the tour, Graham Podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe it was just a story from Graham Podcast and Daddy. Um, oh, that's funny though. <laughs> Where's Graham Podcast? He's over there. Look, he's on stage. <laughs> Hello, Graham Podcast. <laughs> Sweetie. So anyway, please enjoy. Yeah. The battle of the so-called baddies, King John and Richard the Third. Oh, boo, bye-bye. You're in Hyde Park Book Club. Leeds. The time is 7pm. Give or take a number of minutes. You just checked that, didn't you? It's Rex Factor, live, with your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Should should explain. Um, we were late opening the doors because we needed some food and we didn't finish back there. So we, we thought it'd be like, we could be like Henry VIII and just banquet on a high table. Uh, we should also explain that they did actually offer us a room, but Ali insisted that that was the best place for us to be. <laughs> it seemed to make more sense at the time. L- less so now. Um, but anyway, what are we doing today, Graham? 
Uh, well, we are here for the uh, fourth of the Rex Factor live episode, so thank you very much, everybody, uh, for coming. Now, I think, Ali, you are going to be very well prepared. You know exactly what we're doing. So, the title, please. Uh, it is, the, you told me this half an hour ago at least, the Battle of the So-Called Baddies, Richard III versus John. You may see me uh, holding my notes to Ali quite a few times when he has to do things that he's very familiar with. <laughs> well, this has come up a lot, but for people watching... You, you might have listened to Rex Factor fairly recently, whereas for me, I recorded a lot of those intros and stuff nearly 10 years ago, so I'm, it's really stretching my memory to try and recall all that. But another point of note is my little boy at the back there. I apologise if um, he's very tired. So if he runs around and offers to play hide-and-seek with you, you're very welcome to, but um, he's probably going to cry. So sorry. <laughs> But yeah, so in each of these uh, live episodes, what we've been doing is various different battles between monarchs from the two series that we've done uh, so far. So tonight's battle is a little bit different to previous ones, because usually we're trying to pick who is the best at doing something, whereas today we're actually looking at the best, not the best, the baddies. So perhaps two of the worst, or at least two of the most notorious kings in English history. But... Do they deserve their reputations? Have they been unfairly maligned? And which one of them is actually England's best baddie? You will get to decide that at the end. And there's an incredibly complex uh, voting mechanism, which I, I will explain at the end, because it might take a while. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's not the worst king. No. It's the best baddie. Yeah. Mm, tricky. Yeah. You're going to have to keep me on the straight and narrow with this one, Graham. Yeah, so the two monarchs that we are going to be looking at are King John and King Richard III, both of whom tend to get uh, quite a bad press, although actually both of them have had quite a few revisionists suggesting that their bad reputations are undeserved. Mm. I can't believe that. I didn't like either of them at the time, did I, when we did them? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, whether or not you liked them at the time, whether you liked them at the end of the episode as compared to the end... Whether you like them the week after, it's, it all is quite interchangeable from your perspective. Yeah, and ultimately it doesn't matter because you decide. <laughs> anyway, what we're going to do is have a quick overview of the two monarchs, then we will look at their life and reigns, and then factor by factor compare them off against each other. So we'll start with King John. Okay. Bad King John, as he's often known, he was born in 1167, the son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, and he became king in 1199 when he was 31 years old. Bit old. Bit old. We have a... a Bit old, says the... uh, (laughs) 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 Well, there's a sweet spot for longevity, isn't there? He'd become king, well, obviously, at six weeks old, like um, Mary Queen Queen of Scots, but not so good... If you're a woman. But 31, a bit old. He must have had a few brothers before him. I he did imagine. have a few brothers before him. I think, to be fair, 31 years old, you're not necessarily at death's door. No, he's no Saxon. Imminently yeah, at yeah. 31. He might yeah. have some years ahead of him. In terms of his appearance, he's about five foot five, so it's a bit relatively short for the Plantagenet yeah. dynasty if we compare him to Richard the Lionheart or Edward I. Ali will shoehorn Edward I in at any I've managed so every I thought I'd just do it game. for him. I got four in in, um, in London, didn't I? Yeah, and I mean, in Bristol, obviously, he was actually the subject of yeah. the episode, so you really, you really <laughs> like that one. Um, he had a powerful sort of barrel-chested uh, body, uh, dark red hair, so he's quite similar to his father, Henry II, actually. Uh, apparently, he looked like a Poitavin. What? So if, uh, a Poitavin. 
someone from Poitou. Oh, right. So I'm sure if you all just think of what you imagine a Poitou <laughs> would look like, then that's obviously going to be King John. Oh. Now, he has quite the reputation. He was described by Victorian uh, Bishop Stubbs as being the very worst of our kings, a faithless son, a treacherous brother. In the whole view, there is no redeeming trait. Mm. None at all. No redeeming trait whatsoever. Okay. While Matthew Paris, the 13th century chronicler, said that foul as it is, hell itself is defiled by John. <laughs> oh, that's damning. That's like a, a Shakespeare description of... Oh, we're going to do him as well. Oh, yes, so, <laughs> forget that. There's a treat coming up. When we were getting the cart out for these, Ali was putting the previous ones back in, and then every now and again, he would go through and be like, hang on. But where's... And then he'd realise who we're actually doing tonight and realise the card was already... We've done out. a lot so far. In terms of depictions of, Rich, of uh, John, um, Shakespeare has done a, a King John play, but not one of his more celebrated ones. So I think probably the best depiction is the renowned, award-winning, very successful Disney's Robin Hood, in oh. which uh, John was a thumb-sucking lion. Yeah, we were asked for... Um, I can't remember who by, for our favourite... Uh, historical films, and that was mine after Braveheart, Edward I, too. Um, so <laughs> I think, yeah, that's definitely background reading if you can get a hold of that. Watching, on, even. On VHS, yeah. The fun thing with uh, King John in um, Disney's Robin Hood is there's a bit where he's sucking his thumb and he says, Wait till you hear Mummy hears about this. And it's only actually once you know the history you realise that Mummy in that case is Eleanor of Aquitaine. Which is quite a fun What reference. is it, what, he's scared of his mum in that? Wait until mummy hears about this. So she's not in it, but he just refers to her oh. as her. I need, to, I need to do some more revision on that film, yeah. <laughs> Richard III is our other chap. He was born in 1452, the son of Richard, Duke of York and Cecily Neville, and became king in 1483. Um, so when he was about 30, 31 years old. Okay, even Stevens, good. Mm. Um, he was about five foot eight, so a little bit taller than John. Contrary to how it's often depicted, he wasn't a hunchback, but he did suffer from a condition called scoliosis, um, which probably would have got worse with age. So he had a curvature, but he wasn't actually hunched over like Quasimodo in the way that Shakespeare and others... I've got a Rex fact for you. Go on. Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt has scoliosis. Mm. So it's obviously possible to do a sub-10 second 100 metres, so Richard yeah. III... <laughs> but presumably then he's got all this... He can actually wield a sword and stuff. He's not a... Yeah, exactly. You can do all of that. Um, he had blue eyes and fair hair, though this probably darkened uh, with age. And like John, he gets quite the bad reputation from some of his most famous writers. Um, for the Tudors, he was this Machiavellian villain. John Rouse claimed that he reigned in the way that the Antichrist is to reign. <laughs> um, though recently, of course, the Richard III Society has campaigned to promote a reassessment of his reign against Tudor propaganda. But for many people, the depiction is always going to be how he is in Shakespeare, where he is the dreadful minister of hell. There it is. Mm. Oh, no, it wasn't. I was thinking of um, Bunchback Toad. Yes, well, there, there were quite a few nasty ways oh. in which he's described mm. in the play. That was my favourite. So those are the two monarchs we're going to be looking at. First up, what are we doing, Ali? Battliness. Biography. <laughs> You're getting there. You're getting there. <laughs> it began with a B. <laughs> yeah. Bit of backgroundy stuff for John's reign. His father, Henry II, ruled over a vast Angevin empire, but he struggled to satisfy the demands of all of his very ambitious sons for land and territories. 
Richard the Lionheart, who came after Henry II, an older brother of John, was esteemed as a crusader king, but he was imprisoned on his way home, and this resulted in a lot of territory being lost to the French. Now, poor John, as the youngest son, was nicknamed John Lackland, because Henry II didn't have any more land to give him. He was actually nicknamed by his father, which probably made oh, it Oh, even... God, that's a bit painful, isn't it? <laughs> even worse. Wasn't he his favourite, though? He was his favourite, despite, uh, despite everything. When Richard the Lionheart is king, and in fact when he's in prison, John schemes against him, tries to at least, if not take land, then maybe even take the throne from his brother. Oh, yes, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Indeed. I hope you've been watching that before <laughs> writing all this up. Yeah, and I don't think he's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but still it's... Uh... <laughs> Almost relevant example. (laughs) (laughs) Worth a watch, 1991, Kevin Costner classic. Despite his um, treachery, he was named as Richard's heir, but this is a bit uncertain because actually John does have uh, a nephew, Arthur of Brittany, and Arthur of Brittany is from an older brother of King John, so by strict primogeniture, Arthur's the one that should be king rather than John. No way. Yeah, so it's all a little bit confusing in terms of the succession. Uh, The loyal knight William Marshall apparently rushed back to help ensure that in England, at least, uh, John would be king. But in the Angevin territories, Arthur is recognised, particularly by the King of France. So we've got a bit of a battle for the overall succession between John and Arthur. There's a lot of nearly Arthurs, aren't there, with uh, Henry VIII's older brother. Yeah. we We did that in the episode, didn't we, about Arthur? in France being recognised. Because it feels like I haven't heard this before, but clearly we have done it. <laughs> to be fair, but... this is the longest ago of any of the ones that we're doing in the tour, because John didn't get the Rax Factor, spoiler. Um, so he wasn't in the playoffs, and we haven't done an animated version of him, so it is a long time no, since you've looked at King John. Oh, OK. I would have thought that that would have been a stronger reign, being the son of the previous king, mm. rather than the son of a son of the previous king. Oh, but he was older. Right. Got you, yeah, carry on, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a good point to this, though, because John is older than Arthur. Yeah. And he's got the support of Eleanor of Aquitaine behind ah, him. of course, yeah. Um, John was criticised for ceding some territories to France early on in the reign um, without putting up enough of a fight. Um, and he later incites a war when he annuls his wife to marry a young heiress who was actually betrothed to one of the allies of Arthur. Um, But it didn't work out too badly for John initially, and he did actually manage to capture Arthur, and so John has now very much got the upper hand. Did he kill him? Well, Arthur does mysteriously disappear after a short amount of time, and uh, one might suspect John being culpable. As a result, he loses a lot of support, and ultimately, basically all of his Angevin territories fall to Philip and the French, and John is forced to come home, not really having done a great job. But he has got the sport, sport, the support of um, Marshall at this point. Is that he's, right? He's still got William the Marshal, but people in England aren't terribly happy um, for a number of reasons. Mm. There's, obviously, we've lost territory in France, and for a number of them who own territory in France, like William the Marshal, that puts them in a bit of a pickle about who they should be doing homage to. There's also an issue in England over the election of a new Archbishop of Canterbury, and when John doesn't go along with the Pope's choice, England ends up being put under an interdict by the Pope, which basically means that almost no church services can take place until John is forgiven. Mm, And he should really be aware of that, given his dad's... Yes, Henry II had one or two run-ins with the Pope, obviously, as well. 
Um, he's unpopular as well because he's doing a lot of very heavy taxation because he's planning a great big campaign to return to France and get all the territories back. So you've got no church services, you've got very heavy taxation. It's not really... It's not a lot of fun. It's not a lot of fun for the nobles or indeed the church. But he does go on the French campaign. He has a little bit of early success. He's got a lot of allies in Europe with him who want to see Philip brought down as well. But unfortunately, his allies are defeated in the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. And that really is the end of it for John. There is no getting that empire back. Oh, God, it looks so good under Henry as well. But... Is, is all down to him or mostly all down to Richard, would you say? Well, he's unlucky because actually John isn't at the battle. It takes place somewhere else. So it's right. not that he's lost. It's just all of his allies have lost. Mm. Okay. But having spent so much time and money preparing for this campaign when he comes home to England, that really is the last straw. The barons rebel and John is forced to agree to the Magna Carta, oh. which uh, limits royal power. But John reneges on the deal, not too surprisingly. <laughs> and as a result, the barons invent the, uh, invite the French Dauphin, the son of the French king, to invade England. That's pretty bad, isn't it? We've never had uh, uh, a war like that on the territory before the uh, anarchy. Like, there hasn't been any more civil war. Yeah, and the fact that they were actually inviting the French to come over. Oh, yeah, that says a lot, doesn't it? Uh, sorry, any French people in the crowd? I mean... In those days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, half the country ends up in rebel hands, including England, uh, including England, including London, the capital. Uh, John loses a lot of the royal treasure in uh, Lincolnshire Wash while he's on manoeuvres, suffers from dysentery, eats a surfeit of peaches, and at the age of 49, he dies, leaving People the country. People just be served surfeits in this yes. time. That's, that's the problem. It's not peaches, it's not lampreys, it's the surfeit. No, thank you, hold the surfeit. I'm yeah, small, medium, large, or surfeit. Surfeit's <laughs> probably too much. Yeah, exactly. So he is. he dies hated by the nobles as well, presumably. He does, yeah, he's in a really bad position. Ironically, his death is actually, in a way, the best thing that could happen because he's got an infant son, Henry III, and everyone is able to get behind him and mm. William the Marshal as regent. Mm. So his death is almost the key to getting rid of the French invasion. So he did well timing-wise in dying? Yes. Okay, good. Richard III, backgroundy stuff for him, really is all about the Wars of the Roses, a period of instability when we had Henry VI, a Lancastrian monarch, suffering from mental health problems, and the Yorkists, and particularly Richard III's father, think that they'll do a better job. Uh, his father and one of his older brothers are killed, but oldest brother, Edward IV, tall and handsome chap, uh, takes the throne successfully, sees off the Lancastrians, and it seems like the Wars of the Roses is all sorted and problem has been solved. Mm. You like Edward IV, don't you? Yeah, you liked him as well. Did I? Oh, right. No, uh, <laughs> I was listening to a um, Con Igledon, uh I can't remember if I reviewed this in a Privy Councillor episode, uh, biography, biography of, uh, story of the War of the Roses. He didn't come across well. Mm. But... Henry III did, and that's since we did even the animation. So yeah. I've, I've got... Richard a whole... III. Oh, yeah, Richard <laughs> III. 
Unless that was, a, that was an alternate history I read, <laughs> in which case you're going to give me a whole new set of facts here. Well, Richard was too young to fight initially in the Wars of the Roses in the 1460s, but when Edward IV is briefly uh, loses his throne uh, in 1470-71, unlike uh, another brother, George, Richard stays completely loyal to Edward. He fights with distinction at the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury. And then from 1478, he was basically based in the north of England, where he won quite a lot of respect for the good governance that he introduced. Bear in mind where we are. Yeah. That's in, we well, might, he, is, he might have some fans. Well, yeah, he is a Yorkist, of course. Mm. Um, Edward IV, perhaps why he maybe doesn't come across well in the book, depending what period it looks at, um, although he was initially very popular, very tall and good-looking, he then just indulges in food and wine, grows quite fat and Henry dies VIII. suddenly. Well, he's Henry VIII's maternal grandfather, oh. strangely. Wow. Okay, well, they were both, yeah, both tall, both, yeah. Started athletic, yeah. nice and athletic mm. and ended up not so much. Mm. So Edward died suddenly in 1483, and he does have two sons. So the eldest, Edward V, um, would be expected to rule, but there will need to be some form of regency or minority. And Edward IV names his brother, Richard, as Lord Protector. But there are some tensions. The maternal Woodville family uh, don't like Richard, don't trust him, and a lot of the other nobles don't particularly like the Woodvilles as well. So mm. there's going to be a bit of a power battle to see who can control the period of regency. Richard and his ally, the Duke of Buckingham, after getting a tip-off from uh, another noble, Hastings, that the Woodvilles are planning something, he intercepts Edward V on his way down to London, arrests Edward's maternal uncle and grandfather, and then takes Edward the rest of the way down. Claimed that the Woodvilles were plotting against him, so to make sure that he was safe, he brings down some of his loyal northern supporters mm -hmm. and puts them into positions of power. Hastings ultimately ends up getting executed. He's basically Richard's chief rival at court at this point. The other prince, the younger Prince Richard, is taken into custody, so we've got both of Edward IV's sons now in the Tower of London, under lock and key. Richard declares that Edward IV's brother... Uh, Edward IV's marriage, sorry, was illegitimate because he'd been pre-contracted to somebody else. As a result, the princes in the tower are also not legitimate and the next person in line is Mr Richard III. That's so helpful, isn't it? Um, it? I said this in the animation bit, but it was going so well. It looked like it, perhaps he was just looking to uh, take control of the regency until declaring the illegitimacy of it, the marriage. Yeah, that was the point at which he declared himself king was a real... Uh... That was a kicker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what was that tip-off that he got on the way down? Was that genuine, do we know? Yeah, so Hastings wrote to him basically saying that the Woodvilles were, I think, sort of planning to take control, um, have quite a large military mm. escort, in effect. But so... he killed him. Ultimately he did, but then I think Hastings started to worry that oh. perhaps Richard was also taking control in a way that wasn't looking to... So it's possible... That there was a, um, I know we're not doing Richard III's um, episode here, but it's possible that he was initially looking to protect them from any Woodville takeover. Well, probably looking to protect himself from Woodville takeover, oh. because obviously the Woodvilles would want uh, Edward V to be yes. the king, because Point. that's their boy. Uh, but there are some documents that Edward V does sign as king. So oh, right. there certainly is a period where it definitely looks like all yeah. is going according to plan, mm -hmm. but then events spiral. And whether that's because Richard is plotting or because others are plotting against him and he reacts, of course, is a question as to whether or not we see him as a baddie or yeah. just a man in a difficult position. Okay. Anyway, he becomes king is the most important thing and the princes in the tower are never seen again. Mm. 
There we go. <laughs> As king, unfortunately for Richard, he struggles to ensure the loyalty of his nobles, and particularly when we've got a Lancastrian, the pretender, Henry Tudor, hiding in France, and quite a few people from court start drifting off to France. On holiday. <laughs> <What you're saying>. <laughs> <laughs> um, even his old ally, the Duke of Buckingham, leads a, a failed rebellion against him. And then his only son and then later his wife both die, meaning that he doesn't have any more uh, successors after him. His family is taken away from him rather tragically. Yeah, I start to feel quite sorry for him at this point. That then his only family are his brother's children. Well, if they are still... Uh, are, yeah, and are they alive at this point? Do we, do we know? Have they been... Well, when that's did they die? the big question okay. about the princes in the tower. Mm. Were they dead? Were they still alive? So he might have had a moment when he thought, oh... I made a mistake there. That really backfired. Henry Tudor invades with uh, French mercenaries in 1485. Um, so we have a battle between the two of them, the Battle of Bosworth. Richard has got the much larger army and he's a more experienced commander than Henry. But because there's dubious loyalty with the nobles, not all of Richard's troops actually commit to battle. Uh, and indeed, Lord Stanley does not engage his troops until Richard makes an unsuccessful charge for Henry himself. And at this point, with Richard surrounded, they join the battle in favour of Henry rather than in favour of Richard. And uh, Richard uh, loses his horse and is killed in the thick of the fighting at just 33 years old. Body was stripped, stabbed up, and uh, he ends up giving a rather ignominious burial at Greyfires in Leicester. Mm. But he didn't flee. He wasn't as per Shakespeare. He was right in there. He was right it. in the thick of the fighting. Mm. And he stays at Greyfriars for a few hundred years and his body was thought to be lost to history. But of course, in 2012, it was rediscovered uh, in a dig funded by the Richard III Society and he was found under a car park, a council car park. Oh, and we, we recently went to do uh, the premiere of the animation in Leicester and it was held at the Richard III Visitor Centre. And it's fantastic. The, where they've... Um, <laughs> I turned up uh, to our hotel and found a car park in the city centre and jokingly said, oh, this is where he was found. And he just was. It, 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 I parked next to him. It's so bizarre. <laughs> it, I know it's weird that he was found in a car park, but, but when you end up parking next to him, it, it is very, very strange. And they, they've done it beautifully, though, haven't they? With um, the, There's a lovely old building that holds the visitor centre and... Taking up one parking space is, is <laughs> Richard. It's brilliant. Well worth a visit. Yeah, loved it. Thanks for anyone who came if you did. So that uh, those are the life and reigns of uh, Richard and of John. How are you at the, this point? Are you thinking that one of them or the other seems more of a baddie? Do you think they've both been misunderstood perhaps? I don't know. It's really no. tricky. I think that um, John was John was just John all the way through his life, even uh, when he was... Um, uh, when when Richard was king, he was still just a bit sly. Whereas Richard, up to that one point that I'm struggling to put my finger on where it happened, yeah. was great. Um, but then, oh my word, he really <laughs> makes up for it. So oh, I can't, there's nothing between them at the moment. They're quite similar in many ways. They come to the throne at basically the same age. They both struggle to maintain the loyalty of their nobles. They're both younger sons. Mm. older brothers, and indeed they have nephews that are, in theory, ahead of them in the, the uh, pecking order. I think you're beginning to do this on purpose, because each evening <laughs> there's been incredible <laughs> parallels between the two. Who, um, who did we do Henry versus? Henry VIII, that is. Edward. Edward. There were surprising Three. parallels there. Yeah. It was fantastic, yeah. So these guys, 
although they're reviled, they have got Richard's got great supporters, and but John never had any in his life. That's where they fall down. That's where the parallels fall down, isn't it? Mm. So he, during his life, was known as a baddie, whereas Richard just lost the battle. If he hadn't lost the battle, perhaps we'd know him as a as a great fella. Yeah. Mm, I'm leaning towards John then, as a baddie, not as a better one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I have to. I don't know why I always have to do the hands. It must infuriate you. Uh, Battleiness. That is right. That is right. Yes, well done. Good. He's unsure because sometimes he's actually been getting applause when he gets it right on some of these live tours. So he doesn't get the applause. Like, is it it definitely Battleiness? But I have learnt them. But that biography threw me. That would. I don't know. Don't know. We we don't actually have that in the episodes. Yeah. So that's that's Mm. mine. Now, it's interesting, battleiness, because as I've said, we're not looking just to see who's a bad king in the sense of not ruling well, but who's bad in the sense of being a bit evil. So actually, what do you want from your ultimate baddie? You probably actually want quite good battleiness in a way, don't you? Well, I think you, you'd probably want, good, you'd want... You'd need some battles so that they can be dastardly on the battlefield, so that they can execute all the prisoners or... Well, I don't really know what else is bad in the battle. <laughs> Killing is pretty bad, but yeah. you know, I don't know. Uh, you, we need some decent battliness to find out how they acted, yeah. So let's look at John and see if he can meet those demands. Um, he does have some positives. He generally gets quite derided in terms of his military record, but it's not all bad. Um, after he had betrayed his brother when he was on the Crusades, he is then, for the last five years, actually quite loyal to Richard, and he spends five years helping him fight in France, and he seems to have been quite an able lieutenant. John, uh, Richard does give John uh, commands, and John leads in person to, you know, sieges on castles and that sort of thing. Mm. So, you know, he's got a bit of ability to him. Okay, and he, does he act honourably throughout that? They, well, he's just under Richard's instruction there, so I suppose that reflects on him. Mm. In 1203, when he'd caused a bit of a ruckus with uh, his second marriage, um, Arthur of Brittany and some of his allies actually besieged uh, the aged Eleanor of Aquitaine in a castle. And John shows his mettle because he stormed 80 miles in just two days, caught his enemies completely by surprise, relieves the castle, and uh, ca- rescues his mother and captures his rival, Arthur. Wow, to save mummy. Yeah. That's amazing. That's pretty good, isn't it? But actually, no, that's pretty bad. That's pretty nice. Well, I'm but so of course, it's okay. It's okay because he loses support for potentially killing his nephew and for having such bad conditions hey. for the prisoners that 22 of them die. Oh, good man. <laughs> bad man. Um, he loses Richard the Lionheart's great castle, uh, the Chateau Gaillard. Oh. But apparently the historians are quite impressed by the uh, campaign that he launched to take it back. It was very innovative. He was going to have a combined land and amphibious attack. So it was quite advanced for the time. Mm. I mean, it failed, but it was well, quite a good idea. Because he was trying to recruit frogs. What are you talking about? <laughs> Amphibious assault. They didn't have... Well, actually running a, 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 across the river on boats to clamber up the cliff. Well, I don't think they were running across on boats. Maybe they just rowed across on boats to good the castle, yeah. got out of the boats. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm impressed. Except that it didn't work. Yeah, all right. <laughs> it's back to square one. He's rubbish. <laughs> Uh, in Ireland, in 1210, he took a very large mercenary army, won the alliance of certain key Irish lords, and built castles at Carrick, Fergus, and Dublin. And although Henry II had been earlier, this is probably really when English rule properly starts in Ireland. So, 
Yeah. Uh, and quite a few <laughs> negative things <laughs> happen after that. So yeah. that's pretty heavy. Okay. Um, didn't he? Wasn't that the beard? Business? Well, in 1185, when he was named Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, he insulted the local lords by mocking them and tugging their beards. And uh, he had to problem? return a year later, having completely failed to oversee his dominance. Yeah, oh, that's awful, isn't it? If you if you can't see it, he must have thought that he was so you know impossible to touch that he could go along yanking everyone's beards and then go back home, eat umple pie, and say the beardy ones beat me up. <laughs> awful, really bad. So well done, more points. Yeah, it's all good and bad. Uh, he does pretty well in Scotland. He faces off against William the Lion, and um, they don't have a battle because William decides not to actually fight it. And as a result, John gets £15,000 or marks uh, of homage, and indeed William's daughters are taken into imprisonment by John. Mm. Was he nice to them? Uh, as far as we know, but again, that's not something that you do lightly to... Yeah, another king's daughter's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, he also later charges up north to see off an invasion of Alexander II of Scotland during the First Barons' War. Ming the so Merciless? Ming the Merciless, yes. no, not Ming the oh, Merciless oh. on the card. Which one was he? Uh, he was the father of Ming the Merciless. Ah, Ming the First Merciless. If you haven't heard some of the Scottish episodes, this is referring to how they look <laughs> on these cards yeah. rather than because <laughs> any of the Scottish kings came from out of space. Like his father as well, Henry II, he has a reputation at being very effective at breaking sieges and castles. Um, if anyone's seen the film Ironclad, you'll have seen him directing the siege of Rochester Castle. He had five stone catapults breaking the walls, sappers collapsing half of the keep. It's a really massive and epic assault. Yeah, with pigs, didn't he? He used uh, the fat of pigs to yeah. burn it all down. Love it. Fantastic. <laughs> Um, he also takes Winchester, Berwick, Colchester, Headingham and Framlingham castles. Oh, they're close to us. They are close to us, yeah. Would, uh, In so, Essex. Yeah. No one? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, Manchester. We'll cut that live. Leeds. Oh, God. <laughs> See, I actually had to edit a Facebook post the other day because I said uh, about the scandal bell digging all the way to Man uh, Leeds. No, Ma I wrote Manchester. <laughs> That's probably why, why you had to edit it. Yes, exactly right. Anyway, oh, carry on. <laughs> uh, so he does have some successes, and then, so it's not certain, actually, that maybe if he hadn't died of a surfeit of peaches, he wouldn't necessarily have lost that Barons' War. He might actually have still been able to be victorious. Mm. So he's got some qualities to him, but he also has some pretty big failures. Um, as we said, he was nicknamed John Lackland initially. When Richard was captured, he had him declared dead and seized all of his castles. Failed to gain enough support, but because of all of this and his shenanigans with the King of France, Philip of France is able to take lots of the Angevin territory. So consequently, Richard spends the last few years of his reign trying to get it all back. So when John's king, that is kind of part of the problem of not losing the Angevin Empire is that he'd actually already given it some of away. Right, that's not so hot. Not so hot. Um, he was nicknamed John Soft Sword for a 1200 peace treaty in which he ceded Bologna and Flanders in return for the recognition of the King of France against uh, his nephew Arthur. And in 1205, after that disastrous campaign where he upset everybody by killing his nephew, he ends up losing all of his French territories. Oh, God, right. So, uh, but and at no point... This has all been my treaty. There hasn't been any serious battles at this point. Yeah, he hasn't really lost any serious battles. And... 
the big defeat at the Battle of Bouvines, it's not actually John there losing. As we said, he spent many years preparing for this campaign, lots and lots of money. He has a lot of success in Poitou. He captures Nantes and Angers. But it's 400 miles away that his allies are defeated uh, by the French. And it's not really John's fault. He's mm. not there. He's done his bit. But mm. nevertheless... It's a very important battle that just means that he's got no hope of getting the French lands back. So, but why wasn't he there? Because it's a big campaign. He's got lots of allies, so they're doing their bit up there. He's down here. Oh, right, okay. It's a it big just campaign. Blue was elsewhere. Yeah. Mm. I mean, not great still, is it? It's not. And uh, the First Barons' War, he might have been able to get his position back, but equally, we've got a civil war. The French have been invited to invade. He's lost most of the southeast of England, plus uh, 17 of his own household knights have abandoned him. Mm. And mm. it's only really because he dies that the war turns <laughs> that it in goes his well. favour. Yeah, that's pretty poor, isn't it? Mm. Um, but you haven't given me any evil deeds on these campaigns. It's... Well, he did kill his nephew in 22 oh, Christmas yeah. Died, yeah, okay, so. yeah, brilliant. Well done, that's great. I know your thresholds are getting quite high after a rather <laughs> bloodthirsty Scottish series, but... Yeah, that's true. If we'd have done that first, I reckon he would have scored... Worse? Or, I suppose, better in this. Mm. Mm. And also, actually, I suppose a baddie does ultimately need to lose, don't they? Yeah, It true. all needs to culminate, everything needs to get on top of them, and John does fulfil that. Yeah, <laughs> marvellously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard III also has quite a few military successes. Um, he was only 17 when he first started getting into battle. It was 1471 when Edward IV was retaking the throne. Um, but Richard fights very bravely in the mists at Barnet and then commanded the right flank of the army at Tewkesbury and hold off uh, a really major attack um, on his forces very successfully. Again, under the reign of his brother, in Berwick, 1482, Richard actually marched all the way up to Edinburgh and uh, recaptured Berwick. So that's the last time that Berwick, this um, sort of border town, changed hands. So it's been England ever since Richard took it back. Complete the opposite then at this point. He's getting loaded territory rather than just losing it all. Exactly. He's doing really well. And he actually gets upset with his brother when they go on a campaign to France in the 1470s. And rather than fight, Edward accepts a uh, peace treaty from the French, which just involves being given lots of food and money and going home. Oh, so he's a bit bloodthirsty too. Mm. Brilliant. Um, but was that... Was that uh, we can't really count that against him, can we? Because it's in during his brother's reign. Yeah. Oh, we know we can count it for him because he wanted to fight. He wanted to right. fight, yeah. Okay. And whatever you think about the morality of uh, taking the throne from your nephew and whatever happened to them afterwards, the previous king, Edward IV, had ruled well. Everything seemed stable. He'd got two sons to take over from him. Mm -hmm. There's no civil unrest, no reason why there wouldn't be a very straightforward succession. But Richard ends up king. It's pretty much, I think, the only time in English history, certainly, that you've got a father-to-son succession with no civil unrest that it isn't actually successful oh right so and but that's his doing isn't it as in richard the third's doing yeah so actually he must be pretty pretty good at this sort of mm. thing the shenanigans aspect yeah the wily sly aspect that he's able to take the throne despite really all the odds being against him yeah that people know that he is very capable and don't like the idea of a teenager taking over how old are they teenagers uh i'm not sure if they're quite teenagers. maybe 12 yeah. and younger mm. And although he loses the Battle of Bosworth, he does actually fight really well. Even Tudor chroniclers uh, say that he was very brave. He led a charge directly for Henry Tudor himself in a bid to end the war and the battle directly by killing his rival, which, as you said, is exactly what you want to see. 
on yeah, Lex in Rex, exactly. Yeah, king on king, brilliant. Uh, Richard killed Henry's standard bearer, and he probably came within just a few feet of Henry before he lost his horse. But then, despite what you see in the Shakespeare play, he actually refuses the offer of a horse, says that he isn't going to run away, and he's going to either win or he's going to die fighting. Oh, and uh, didn't pay off. Well, I mean, he obviously he does die trying fighting, but he's the last English king to die in battle. And actually, that's you know, I mean, it's not a good way to go. It's pretty horrible. But in terms of chivalric code, he dies mm. fighting. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really good if you're trying to lose well. Yeah. <laughs> so he's doing really well at this point, and he's got a bit of evil behind him. It's looking good for this. Um, against him, the Scottish campaign wasn't actually very successful. He was meant to install a rival king of Scots, but they were all having such a sort of intrafamilial mess that he just decided to go home and took Berwick <laughs> on the way back. Um, Bosworth, sorry, oh. does that mean that that his victory at Bosworth, uh, at Bosworth at Berwick, uh, we can attribute to some Scottish weakness? Yes, we can. Mm, okay, reassessing. <laughs> and uh, although he fought bravely at Bosworth, he does actually, of course lose the Battle of Bosworth mm. and get killed, mm. which isn't maybe the best thing to do. No, no. But it was a valiant attempt. And like we said, if you're looking for a great end to the baddies uh, film story, then mm. Richard surrounded by people and ultimately being killed is, again... Yeah, really good. That's a good ending. But it is the end of the Plantagenet dynasty that you oh, so love. Yeah, they are the best, though. We can all agree that, can't we, Graham? <laughs> Let's not talk about what happened at Bristol. <laughs> we had Edward I against Henry VIII, Battle of the Favourites, and I think they must have got confused about the colours of the cards. Yeah, you're going to have to be very clear tonight. because it that, was a, that was a very strange vote. They obviously didn't mean it. <laughs> I, think, I think you've got... No, there at least three people voted for uh, Henry, didn't they? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, Score-wise, John got 8 out of 20. Uh, Richard III got 12 when we did them originally. So Richard got a higher score... Well, yeah, but I sort of think that that's just because the scandal that he's involved in echoes down the ages. Everyone knows about the Princes and Tower. John, he's just consistently a, a bit rubbish. And uh, I suppose if we think about who is the biggest baddie, do we think one moment of evil, potentially, is better than a whole lifetime of just being a bit of a nasty bloke. I suppose if you're thinking of battliness, who is the, the better villain for mm. a great film or story? Who's the one that if you're facing off against them, you're, sort of, uh, you're fearful of them coming, you think, oh, they might actually win this? Definitely Richard then. Because also he, he, he's got the actual skill. You know that he is a competent baddie. You, you're not scared of someone who's a bit rubbish, really. Um, like in Bond films, it's always the ones who are physically terrifying as well that, that you wouldn't want to face in, ba in battle. Not What is it? Die Another Day where it's just a, a pretty nasty journalist who's the, <laughs> who's the batty rubbish. So that's John, a pretty nasty journalist. Although John never actually loses a battle, unlike Richard. Oh, oh you're twisting my melon, Graham. Mm. I'll still say Richard at this mm. point. Scandal. Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's tragic. <laughs> well, obviously, this is where we're going to expect to see some good things. If you're yeah. a real baddie, then that bell needs to be dinging away. Yeah. Let's start with John. Uh, he's excommunicated by the Pope. Oh. 
Um, a dispute over uh, the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury was the issue in question. John will not give in. As a result, he's excommunicated. The country is placed under papal interdict. No services other than if you get a special dispensation for funerals and baptisms. Um, there's a rumour uh, that comes after John's reign that he offered um, a caliph to convert England to Islam no. in return for support. How, how rumour, I mean, is there anything to it? The problem is, like with Richard III, that there are a lot of very hostile chroniclers that make up quite a lot of nonsense. That sounds complete nonsense, and doesn't I it? think that's probably an example of nonsense. Yeah. Okay. I won't. I mean, that that would break if that's true. <laughs> At the time, that would have been massive. It really would. Yeah. I mean, he was was the country excommunicated just because he was? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think it was that the Pope was so cross with him, it wasn't enough just to. Oh, okay. to communicate the king. So, I think he does the country first and then John second. Right, okay, that's real baddie material then. Mm. He's quite a treacherous character, is our John. Despite being his father's favourite, he ends up going over to uh, Richard's side when Richard rebels against Henry um, in 1189 and it's the news that even John has abandoned him that ultimately sees Henry II basically just give up and die. He kills his father as well, mm. sort of. Uh, as we said, when John was uh, coming back and captured from the Crusades, uh, Richard coming back from the Crusades, John conspires against him, makes a deal with a French king, tries to have himself become king. And proclaims his brother dead. Yes, because with no reason to, other than that it would make it easier for him to rule, obviously. Yeah, and presumably they're getting a load of really urgent letters saying, we've got your brother, <laughs> yeah. um, give receipt. us loads of money. Yeah. yeah. That, so no one believed him? No. All right, good. But still, that's a nice evil touch, isn't it? It's very nice and evil. And um, so we've got him betraying his father, betraying his brother. Potentially, obviously, the biggie is murdering his nephew, Arthur oh, yeah. of Brittany. Um, his nephew had a better claim by primogeniture because he's the son of an older brother for John. Um, John captures him and, by legend, got drunk, killed him with his own hands and then threw him into the River Seine. Mm. What, so that's the legend. What's the official line? Died of um, surfeit of sausages. <laughs> well, we don't know, ultimately, like we'll find the princes in the town. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to Arthur. Um, apparently, when he was initially imprisoned at Falaise, his uh, jailer, Hubert de Burr, refused orders from John to have him murdered. Oh, right. So he was transferred to a chap called William de Browse at Rouen, and uh, William's wife later accuses John of murder. Did she meet a sticky end? She does meet a sticky yeah. end. Um, yeah. the, she and also her son, um, when Will, Lord William de Bras was imprisoned, um, no, he wasn't imprisoned, um, William has an argument with John, a big falling out, so his wife and son are imprisoned by John and they are starved to death in Corfe Castle. Oh, God. Just left there. He is not nice. I mean, I'm beginning to realise why he's up in this battle here. This is not good at all. Not a pleasant chap. Uh, there's a rumour of, well, lots of rumours of cruelty with John, one of which is that uh, he had the Archdeacon of Norwich crushed under a cope of lead. Oh, gross. That was what, that was a torture method, though, wasn't it? When you had uh, just something heavy put on you and it, the weight increased and increased. Yeah, so, so it's not like he's crushed immediately. It's a slow and oh, painful... Mm, nasty. Mm. Which is what we want to see. Yes, I mean, great. Brilliant. Well done, John. Um, he was already married, but he became infatuated with uh, a woman called Isabel of Anguilem. 
who was um, at most 15, possibly even as young as nine. Oh. So he annuls his marriage to his first wife um, and then very quickly marries the second one. Or in fact, he may even have done it the other way around. He may have to have post <laughs> whatever annulled yeah, first one after that. marrying the second. Mm. So a little bit of bigamy in there. Um, and she was betrothed to one of the nobles who was allied with Arthur. So ultimately, this marriage actually leads to more warfare that sees him losing all of his French territories. Wow, that's awful. Mm. And uh, he was also quite notorious amongst the nobles for demanding to have his way with the wives and daughters. Now, usually... Which was also a bit of a point of tension. Yeah, I imagine. Um, usually, like, if that were Charles II, for example, we go, oh, Charles. But with <laughs> yeah. John... Oh, dear, oh, dear. Don't mm. like that at all. No. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, like we'll see with Richard as well... The other side is that a lot of this might just be being made up by people that don't like him. Uh, Certainly exaggerated. The Archdeacon, uh, Archdeacon of Norwich, who was said to have died, was apparently also actually found a few years later to have become the Bishop of Ely or something like that. <laughs> so he probably wasn't crushed to death. Oh. And then became the Bishop of Ely. Oh. I suspect that he just became the Bishop of Ely. That's weird. Well, how do, how do people get away with this stuff in those days? I suppose no camera phones, isn't it? You can't say, here he is, found him. <laughs> well, I guess they also didn't realise that historians were going to be going over with a fine tooth comb all yeah. of these records to check where John was on all of these days yeah. and whether people that were said to have died actually died yeah. when they said they did. Just make it up. Mm. So that makes your job a lot more difficult. So no death of Bishop. I'll take that away from the ledger. But his own nephew. Yeah. And various other things. Mm. Mm. That's some good baddying. It's brilliant baddying. I mean, if he set out to do it, he's, he's <laughs> doing really, really well. If he just focused on being a better king, he might have done better mm. overall. Although, weren't we disappointed that he wasn't bad enough in the first series? That was his problem. Mm. Anyway, let's see if Richard can raise his game on the scandal front. Uh, in 1471, after the Lancastrians have been defeated, after the Battle of Tewkesbury, Richard is alleged to have killed Henry VI's son, Prince Edward, as well as the last Duke of Somerset and various Lancastrian figures who were dragged out of sanctuary from an abbey mm. in order to be killed, because you couldn't that... kill them in the abbey. Uh, yeah, there's, there's previous for that, isn't there, with Henry? Yeah. But uh, that's interesting then, that maybe that's why... Uh, the Elizabeth Woodville eventually gave up the sons because he'd have just dragged them out anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's even rumoured to have killed Henry VI himself when they got back to London. Really? Mm. Oh dear, do we know, what's the official record, what happened to him? Because he was just completely uh, bedridden, wasn't he? Yeah, I think you, you, you phrased it quite sweetly where you just said that he was put to sleep. Oh. <laughs> Henry put, yeah. put out of his misery. Yeah. Um, his brother, the Duke of Clarence, was executed in 1478 for treason. Um, allegedly, he was drowned in a vat of wine. Brilliant. Um, but Shakespeare presents Richard as being the chief instigator of all of this. He plots against his brother because ultimately this brings Richard closer to the mm. throne. Mm. Get him out of the way. Not Didn't too many more people ahead of him in the line. Um, possibly Richard's interventions could have saved Clarence if he'd wanted to, but instead he gets quite a lot of his land. Right. Brilliant. I'm getting so confused if it's brilliant or bad, and if it's bad, that's great. So, yeah, just evil is good. Yeah, we like this. 
The usurpation of his nephew was a massive shock to many people. It's the only time in English history a father-son succession uh, fails, other than with the civil war with Charles I and Charles II. The execution of Edward V's maternal uncle and grandfather after Stony Stratford came as a real shock, because when Richard first meets them, they're all getting on famously, they have drinks and food and go to bed all very happy, and then the next morning they're arrested for treason. God. What is it? Was that just to get them relaxed and not thinking about it and then yeah. just get them hung over, really? Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, after this, of course, we have the uh, Hastings, the most senior noble in the land, um, was almost executed on the spot after meeting uh, in council. He's basically dragged outside there and then. No, uh, no trial, no anything like that, just straight just... off, accused of treason and murdered. A head-off job or stabby-stabby? Head-off job. Oh, yeah. The best way. A bit official. Yeah. A bit <laughs> official. <laughs> uh, and obviously the biggie is the princes in the tower. Um, he was made to swear a public oath to Elizabeth Woodville that when he was going to take her second son to the Tower of London that they would come to no harm. Mm. Um, whether or not you think that means he was more or less likely, the key thing is the fact that she felt she needed him to yeah. make that promise implies mm. that she's already thinking that he might uh, do something not particularly good. But once he's got possession of both of them, they were never seen again and widely suspected and rumoured, even at the time, that Richard himself might have had his nephews killed. Mm. Strange that they were never seen at all by anyone, isn't it? But well, I mean, presumably they were seen again by somebody, but in terms of yeah, people... Once. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's... So something happened... And it's unlikely that anything happened without Richard's say-so. Mm. So if not at his hand, at his say-so. Perhaps. I hate this perhaps. I just want to know. <laughs> It'd be so much easier. DNA those bones, I want to know. Still wouldn't tell you who killed them, though. Good point. Unless there's a, a dagger in the back with, this is my favourite knife. <laughs> Love yeah. Um, after the death of his son, he doesn't have an heir... And um, his wife, Anne, uh, when she died in 1485, there were widespread rumours that Richard had her poisoned. Oh, you can't catch He can't have done all of these. This guy's just putting out fires and <laughs> lives. And there were rumours that he did this because he was planning to marry his niece, Elizabeth of York, the Ooh. older sister of the princes in the tower. Oh, God, that's, all, that's on so many levels. That, that's his niece, and potentially he killed her brothers. Mm. Ugh. Brilliant. Ugh. And then he had to issue a public denial, both of planning to marry his niece and also of having plotted to kill his wife. Yeah, yeah. This, that's never good, is it? If you actually have to say, I definitely didn't do this. I, people can assume that of me. Mm. Awful. In his defence, or perhaps in this case, if we want a baddie against him, Mm. For the 1471 murders, any executions of the Lancastrian nobles would have been almost certainly at his brother's orders and connivance, so we should be blaming Edward IV rather mm. than Richard III. Even right. if Richard was involved, it wasn't just something he did on a whim. Right, okay. His brother was actually guilty of treason. He had always plotted against Edward IV, and again, we can assume that Edward IV would have ordered his execution, not Richard III. Okay, yeah. And the usurpation, it's... You might see that Richard is just a victim of circumstance. The last time that there was uh, a minority, there was a Duke of Gloucester, which Richard uh, was at the time. He ended up being killed 
by his rivals during this minority of Henry VI. So if you see it as a sort of a Game of Thrones, you win or you die situation, it's a violent period. His father and one of his brothers have both been killed. Richard is just trying to protect himself. And if he thinks, well, the Woodvilles will ultimately kill me and their children will obviously revert to what mum says, not what I say, he may have felt that the only way out of it was ultimately to become king himself. Yeah, and that um, potential marriage with his niece makes you wonder whether he was just trying to make a really, really um, legitimate line. Uh, so maybe he, he was planning a little, lot more deeply about this than I thought. It didn't just sort of happen and yeah. events ran away. Mm. Um, and also he apparently had quite a close relationship with his wife, so he probably didn't kill her, it was probably just tuberculosis. Mm. And there are alternative suggestions for what happened to the princes in the tower. It could have been his erstwhile ally, the Duke of Buckingham, who, having been with Richard, then suddenly rebels against him. He claims that he was outraged about the death of the princes, but equally maybe he just had them killed and then blamed Richard because mm. he had a claim to the throne. So if he kills the princes, kills Richard, maybe Buckingham was going to be king. Well, so he killed the princes to shift the blame onto Richard. Richard. Oh, right. Yeah, that's interesting and then kill Richard, and then he's king. Right, yeah, that's pretty dastardly, isn't it? And if the princes in the tower weren't dead, then you would then look to blame uh, Mr Henry Tudor for their death rather than Richard III. Hang on, I'll say that again. If they weren't dead... If Richard hadn't killed the princes, then probably Henry VII would have done if he'd realised they were still alive, because then he wouldn't have had the best claim to the throne. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense for Henry VII to kill them doesn't it? Because at least, at least Richard can be king for a bit. Well, but if he wants to be king and uh, he's got two people that a lot of people say should be king, then he's always going to have that sword hanging over him, Richard, mm. isn't he? Mm -hmm. But equally, if he doesn't kill them because he feels guilty about killing his nephews... But, he, but they were, as you say, they were never seen, so he's never able to display them publicly and say, look, no, it's all right, they're all here. Yeah. Mm. Dodgy. Mm. In terms of scores, John got 18 out of 20 and Richard got the full 20 out of 20. So they're two big hitters on the scandal front. Yeah. I sort of, I sort of think that it's just that one moment, though, with Richard. That one, and it's a potential moment. It's definitely massive because it's one of those ones like the, Arch, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, it was. It was, Thomas yeah, Beckett. Thomas Beckett, thank you. Uh, that just echoes down the years and you can't not give him massive scandal um but with john he's just a bad man he's just killing lots of people and it, being quite cruel and mean yeah i mean he's he's killing his relatives too but but perhaps because unlike richard there isn't this uh he's not making a song and dance about saying oh it wasn't me it wasn't me he just he thinks oh i'll say sort of it wasn't me but everyone knows it was anyway next thing uh, and I'll go and be evil elsewhere. He's more consistently bad. So I like him, <laughs> or I think he should be more, get more points in this. In it's this. strange, isn't it, the fact that the princes in the tower is such a massive thing, and yet no one seems to have any qualms about the fact that John killed yeah, his yeah, exactly. nephew. They both are accused of killing their nephews ahead of them in the line of succession. But at least Richard did loads of good stuff as well, whereas John was just a bit mean, a bit evil. Subjectivity. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I read that one. I definitely can't get applause for that. Um, well, this one, ironically, usually this is where we get to say, oh, well, they did this, they were a good ruler, we can support them, we can respect them. But what we're hoping for here 
is really, really bad attempts at good governance. Yes, yeah, this is normally where you come out with all of the legal reforms and I get a cup of tea. This is unfortunately where the revisionists come along and say that these guys aren't as bad as we think they are. Mm. So for John, who you thought is beyond all, well, as uh, Bishop Stump says, beyond all redeeming tra uh, traits, was actually quite a cultured man. He had a travelling library, very large, that he used to take with him. Um, an enthusiastic gambler, and well, I suppose a gambler and hunter, that's not necessarily the most... Uh, <laughs> Um, he enjoys the fineries of life, um, clothes, jewels and wine. He lowers the price of imported wine from the Loire Valley, which was very popular. Was that his territory anyway? Yes. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> he could be quite genial and witty when he wasn't stabbing people and starving them to death. Yeah. You know, right. catch him on the right day. Yeah, well, he might just not immediately kill you. Yeah. Brilliant. Something which is definitely going to appeal to your heart. He was actually very good at bureaucracy and administration. Oh, yeah, bring it. I love that. Um, he was right at the heart of England's bureaucratic machinery. <laughs> Chancery roles in this period record all the charters and letters. It's really from this point onwards, historians have got lots of really good records. Right. And it's because John's really in the thick of it. He's a good ruler in that sense, good governance. I sort of think that he's so sick-minded... He wants everyone to know what he did. And he's going to make records of this. Yeah, I was that man. Mm. Awful. Control freak as well, perhaps. He's got to yeah. be in charge of every little detail. Yeah. Mm. Surprisingly, he's also got a decent record at justice and law and order. I mean, not obviously a personal record, but in terms of the uh, overall country, what other people are doing, he does actually intervene to try and improve the laws and improve the way that justice is distributed across the country. Mm, okay. Doesn't pay by the rules, of course, himself, but yeah. everybody else is expected to. He has quite a positive role. And weirdly, Magna Carta, of course, comes under John. It's not as if John himself particularly wanted it to come along, and indeed he reneges on the deal as soon as it's been agreed. Yep. But it's still there. Well, it's there because he was so rubbish that the barons got to a point where they enforced this on him. And I can't believe we didn't bring that up for scandal, that he just went against it. Well, I mean, to be fair, lots of nobles put sort of various things in front of the king at certain times and say, oh, you've got to go along with this and agree to that. Mm. And it's only really because Magna Carta became a big thing later oh, okay. that John looks worse for fighting against it. Actually, yeah. it would have just been another king resisting his barons. Right, yeah. It's not good, though, given that... It's Magna Carta. Indeed, and there are some bad things for John as well. He inflicts very heavy taxes to pay for his failed French campaigns. Um, apparently he le uh, levied 11 scootages uh, during his reign, where it had only been done 11 times in the previous 45 years. I've got to ask what they are. Yes, and I've forgotten what they are. Oh, actually. Damn, sorry. I think it's well, when you raise sort of um, military groups and taxes and stuff okay. to pay for that sort of thing. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's not done regularly, but under John... Loads. Loads and loads and loads. He's jealous, he's suspicious, he's prone to those Plantagenet fits of rage that his father yeah. was as well. Brutal treatment of his enemies. Arthur, of course, those 22 prisoners that died, the mother and her Sorry, son. Sorry, I don't know why I'm smiling. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the entire country basically excommunicated. Yeah. Brilliantly played by Paul Giamatti in that film. Ironclad. Uh, Ironclad as well. So good. His rage is fantastic. And he returns England to civil war. Yeah. Really bad. Very bad. When was the... How long ago was the anarchy from this? Uh, so the, this one is in 1216, and the anarchy would have been sort of starting in the 1130s. So mm. 80 years. So it's... Yeah. There weren't people who could remember it. No. Right. Still bad. Still quite bad. What about Richard? 
again, some surprisingly good traits from Richard, which is not what we want to see today. He actually presides over quite a magnificent court, despite the fact that he's often portrayed as quite dark and miserable and that sort of thing. Uh, there's lots of pageantry and ceremony. He's a patron of music and art, uh, art and architecture. Mm. And uh, since his body was rediscovered and lots of uh, DNA tests have been done on him, it was discovered that he was really living the high life once he became king. Apparently he was uh, drinking a bottle of wine every day <laughs> and feasting on swan eagles and heron. Ooh, sounds gross. Sounds gross, but equally probably quite a high-ticket item on the menu. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, he didn't have long to, to do all this. No, either. that's like two years yeah. of really binging on the wine yeah. and heron. A lot of herons in two years you can eat. Yeah. Mm. Um, he's even praised by, Tudor, uh, praised by Tudor chroniclers for some of his good laws. Uh, Mancini, an Italian ambassador, said that he won much respect for his public activities and good deeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what we've got to remember here then is that how long did John reign for? I mean, we're going to get onto that. I'm we sure, will get but, onto that. But it's a lot longer yeah. for him to fit in good stuff, and we're saying that Richard did a lot of good stuff in a short amount of time. Mm. Negative points. Yeah, he abolishes arbitrary tax of benevolences from Edward the Fourth. What's that? Um, so this is sort of money that basically he says that people have to pay and the nobles have to pay. Oh, right. So he's kind of just making up to a certain extent, <laughs> finding reasons why they have to give him some money. But Richard gets rid of it. Uh, a court of requests allow poor people to have grievances heard even if they can't afford representation. Oh, that's oh, so that's like um, legal aid. Hmm. He reforms the system of bail, uh, bans restrictions on the printing and sale of books, and he orders a translation of laws from French into English. That's really good. Hmm. So really bad? Yeah. Oh dear, he's not looking good at all, but he's the archetypal baddie. And he's got an excellent reputation for what he does in the north. Um, it was, for previous kings, a very difficult pe- uh, place for them to rule. Royal control doesn't stretch quite so well um, once you start going north. But Richard um, introduces a council of the north to help improve government. Um, he helps sort out the border with Scotland to make sure that you don't get so many raids coming down, promotes impartial justice mm. in the area as well. So actually, he gets an awful lot of respect for the way that he governs. So when he dies, the York Civic Records lamented his death, saying that he was slain to the great heaviness of this city. Oh, you treacherous lot. <laughs> <laughs> And Francis Bacon noted a few years later when there were rebellions against Henry VII that the, uh, the memory of Richard III still stirred people's hearts in the north. Well, that's definitely true. When we, um, uh, we went to Bosworth and we met a lot of very passionate Richard fans there. He still, um, he, he has... I don't know how recently this has happened. Like, was it the, what was that book you made me read? Made me read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Daughter of Time. Yeah. yeah. When was that? That's. I think that was like the 50s or something. It was a while ago. It's not a recent book. Oh, okay. Well, I thought it was much more recent than that. You've um, read it recently, so in that yes, sense... Yes, that's it. It's, it's only six months new. old. Fantastic. Um, uh, but until that, until very recently, he's always been the baddie. And, mm. Or has it been the case that he's had support up north for a while? I mean, that was 100 years after his death, you're saying. Yeah. It? Well, fantastic. Bad. The bad side is that for people in London, the North was this barbaric place where all sorts of terrible people were, and the fact that he brings Northerners down to London is absolutely <laughs> dreadful. That's the, it's, it's the last thing they want to see in London. So for them, this is about as bad as it can be. There were um, about six or seven vacancies in the Order of the Garter, and he fills almost all of them with Northern supporters. That's outrageous. I mean, oof, shocking. God. 
After the bucking rebellion, all of the forfeited land from the rebels is given to more northern allies trying to shore himself up. So House prices are going to go down. That's yeah. terrible. <laughs> Uh, during the Civil War, Edward IV seemed to have fixed everything. All of this period of conflict and uncertainty is dealt with, but Richard comes along, gets rid of the two sons, reopens all the divisions, and ultimately ends the Plantagenet dynasty. Yeah. That's lasted since mm. Henry II, hundreds mm. of years, and Richard brings it all down. And Henry VII, lowly Welshman, has a very poor claim to the throne, and yet Richard is unable to win sufficient loyalty. Yeah, I mean, it does bring it all crashing down, but it was, as you say, in that sort of Game of Thrones, you win or die scenario, it, it could have, and I know you hate what-ifs, but it could have been uh, a, a fantastic Plantagenet reign, it, all of it leading up to it, and these princes would have been a funny little footnote because he would have had control <laughs> over all of the records. Funny story. <laughs> <laughs> you never guess what happened. Um, uh, but it does happen under him, doesn't it? It's been a bit of a running theme for Ali in these live episodes that whenever um, a king dies, Ali says, oh, if only they hadn't died, then they could have achieved so many yeah. other things. Yeah, apart from with perhaps Edward the first, um, <laughs> where he was dying on campaign and maybe because he was so old, maybe it wouldn't have gone so well. And so it's great that he died doing, doing what he did best. Doing what he loved. Killing Scots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, with subjectivity, we're actually, in a way, we're looking for evidence of bad rule and governance rather mm. than good. So, both of them have got revisionists telling us we should be more impressed with them. So, who do you think actually comes out? Richard comes out best by well, far. Mm, in the sense of being a good ruler. Yeah. Which is not what we want, no, really. No, so John is winning this because he's consistently bad. He's not very good at, at um, kinging. Mm. I mean, um, there's, the, uh, there's the end of the Plantagenet dynasty, but... <laughs> this is it's tricky isn't it because that is him but that happens the moment after he gets the old head chopped off mm. so is that him and he didn't really mean to do it whereas john meant to do all of these mean horrible things and and richard got so much done in those two years that's really really good whereas john just had a long time of bad stuff mm. so that's good Though if you are going to look at the Plantagenet dynasty ending and this being a really, really terrible thing, then to be fair, Richard really comes in and makes an impact. He's only king for a couple of years and yeah, mm. look at everything that happens. Mm. Mm. I still I just can't get to see beyond John. I think he absolutely wipes the floor with him here. Not that yes, you're trying to influence the audience. Oh, you? no, I, yes. Yeah, you did say we're going to have to be a bit... I got so used to because we were doing uh, um, Edward versus Henry VIII and we knew that there was just no way we could be impartial. <laughs> Got quite used to picking a favourite. So, um, yeah, no, it could go either way. I don't know. Um, yeah. Let's move, let's move on to yeah, the yeah, next factor. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading this. Longevity. <laughs> Thanks all the same. <laughs> so John is king from 1199 to 1216, which is 17 years. Richard III, 1483 to 1485, just two years. Hmm. Mm, not good score. No, and uh, Richard is actually one of the shortest reigns in English and British history. I think he was 52nd out of 56 for English monarchs. Hashtag Rembrandt. Hashtag, yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know if long, how much longevity... Because in a way, you could say, well, John, that's a long period of bad kinging. Oh, yeah, good point. But equally, Richard comes in and it's this very just short, sharp, focused period of evil. 
Well, I mean, yeah, but there's that one moment of evil, really. There's that, like, maybe, I don't know how long a, your average slaughter takes, maybe, say, <laughs> say five minutes um, with the small talk beforehand. Um, so you've got that that happened, and then there's two years of concentrated really good stuff, so that's, we're not enjoying that. Mm. Whereas, John, you've got such a long period of bad stuff, so that's great. Yeah, I think he wins this as well. I mean, it's longevity uh, just is doing what it normally does, gives him a good score because they're both because he was so bad. Although maybe, might you think, that if John was so, so bad, then he couldn't have lasted for that long, whereas Richard only gets a couple of years and is seen off by someone with not a great claim to the throne mm. and all of his nobles abandoning him. And or some the of them. Maybe that suggests that John wasn't quite as bad as we say he was. Yeah. If he was able to carry on that long, and he doesn't actually get overthrown, he just has too many peaches. <laughs> yeah, but if so without once his um, nephew's gone, was there any other claimants to the throne? That, I mean, was there anyone else? I mean, it could have been instead of doing the Magna Carta, he ran out of nephews and to kill. Actually, there was a niece. He didn't kill was the there? niece. Yeah. Oh, he probably thought. I mean, he had him imprisoned for the rest of his life. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm struggling to think of a way I can phrase this without uh, swaying the audience. <laughs> no, he won that, didn't he? Fair and square. There's only one left. Yeah, but oh, the one I can see is Rex Factor, so I just had to look beyond the hummus to Dynasty, not the programme. So, John has five children who survive him. Mm -hmm. Richard III does not have any. Better. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Richard, and we said he ends the Plantagenet dynasty, he actually ends John's dynasty. Oh, yeah. Because John is the Plantagenet. Yeah, good point. Uh, that's, Dynasty's a funny one to score on evil, isn't it? Mm. Uh, we really would need to know the number of illegitimate children that they both yeah. had to really have a better... The illegitimate dynasty would be the better. That would be better, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll update on Facebook or Twitter <laughs> yeah. stuff. So in terms of the overall scores, they're actually, surprisingly, they're quite similar. John, just ahead, 48.85, compared to Richard III, who got a 45. But John had so much longer to do stuff to score higher points. Yeah, and a lot of that was longevity, yeah. yeah. But, mm. you know, similar, similar sort of scores. Actually, not bad scores, really. Richard better on the non-factual one, so the battliness, scandal, subjectivity, Richard mm. III does better. But the big question, of course, isn't who has that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement that we call... Rex Factor! It's who's the biggest oh. baddie. Who's the villain? Do you think do you think that they're both baddies, or do you think that one or both of them actually have perhaps been unfairly maligned? I I, I think that John is definitely a baddie. I think that John he, he is the um he's he's just the archetypal baddie. Everything he does, he does sort of either not very well or with an evil edge. Richard, unless he is such a baddie that this has been the plan the whole time and he's like some sort of evil genius and in the background he's been planning this and plotting it and it, it, it just doesn't come off because um, his horse cops it. it he could he could be oh my god he could be an evil genius couldn't he oh this could be horrible uh and you know in the Star, Star Wars films Darth, Darth Vader doesn't start out being all bad yeah but yeah. he ends up quite bad. He does. 
So just because Richard was good at the start doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't give him credit where it's due for... Yeah, it could have been the start of a beautiful evil dynasty. Yeah. Oh, oh, I like that theory. And he's, and he's uh, had a... If he did get out of the Battle of Bosworth, he would have had similar um, scarring to Darth. Didn't think I'd ever say that. And had to wear a helmet like him. Yeah, yeah it's Darth Vader. He's Darth Vader, but he didn't get a chance to um, get the cape. Mm. Whereas John, he's just a um, one of those pretty divvy um, white foot soldiers. What do you call them? The stormtroopers. Stormtroopers throughout his life. Mm. Mm. So is a stormtrooper more evil than, than Darth Vader before he comes evil? That is tricky. This is one of the great philosophical yeah. questions of our time. I reckon, I reckon I'd take my chances with pre-evil Darth. So, I, <laughs> translation, John is worse. Well, that's the verdict, but uh, just in case just in case you want to have your say as well, you should all find um, either on or under your seats some cards. On one side it is red, and on one side it is green, and uh, we haven't thought of a clever way of making it clear which side is which if you can't tell the difference between those two colours, but... No, I can't think of one. Uh, John Green? Yes, I was thinking red for Richard. Nice. Green for John. So if you want Richard to win hold the red towards us. Oh, and if you yeah. want the green to win, hold... Sorry, if you want John to <laughs> win, hold the green towards us. Ali's going to just get it up on his phone, so if it's very close, then we can do a little count. So, so if you're holding green towards us, they want... John. John, OK. So three, two, one, vote. Ooh. Well, I don't think we're going to need oh, to spend wow. too long looking at the photo there. There's... A lot of greens and not so many reds. I think, Ali, you look like you've influenced this crowd. It's a win. <laughs> Yay! The King John is the biggest baddie. Well done, John. I think either that or um, we, we've got the Ricardians in tonight. <laughs> Well, actually, we could do another quick one, actually. Although, obviously, you've been very much in the baddie mindset. So if you quickly readjust, same colours, who do you think was the better king? If we had to give the Rex Factor to one of them, should it be John or should it be Richard? So what the colours are? That? So, so we're looking what, for If reds. you think that John was a better king, show us the green. If you think that oh, Richard was okay. the better king, the red. So right. three, two, one. Oh, that's unanimous. Oh, we've got one. Oh, we've got one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, it's, oh, no, the it's wrong a change. <laughs> oh, no, actually, I think there might be one at the back there. Oh, OK. Well, okay, that's interesting. Well, that, that is a big win for Richard III. Better ruler, but not the better baddie. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Everybody comes out a winner. That's a nice one. <laughs> so, well done, John. So, uh, the plan now is to have as long as you want for some Q&As, um, but... Don't feel you, um, if you haven't had a question that you wanted answered, we're um, selling, oh yes, good point. We're selling, <laughs> me, we're selling some t-shirts at the back there, which this isn't turning into the full Monty. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Uh, we're selling some t-shirts, tour t-shirts, rock and roll, uh, with the tour dates on the back, uh, at the back there. So if you want to talk to us afterwards, you can catch us there, but... Um, it sounds like Rue has gone to sleep, so I'm going to be off the clock and can have a beer with you all. So, <laughs> so please do hang around and have a drink with us because it's so nice to finally meet you uh, because normally it's just 
me and Graham and a computer, and we have no idea if anyone's really listening. So it's great to to see that there are. I mean, there's there's viewing uh, viewing figures, <laughs> statistics that you roll out to me, but it's just nice to finally meet you. So and please usually, do. Chat. Usually, you take your trousers off as well. When I do. Well, hang on. <laughs> Let's. Let's get some uh, context around this. I, I described it, I have a very strict underwear policy. Not that I always wear them, but I, I mean, I do always wear them, but that isn't the policy. It's that, um, uh, that from about November through to March, long johns are the order of the day, and Graham's flat is stifling. So it's either far too hot, and I'm wearing pants, so the trousers come down, Oh, this is horrible. <laughs> oh, it's really hot and it's winter, but, and I've got long johns on, so the trousers come down. I'm, I'm trouserless. So, but I'm keeping them on for you tonight, Graham. What do you think? I've got a nice new pair of jeans. Yes, yeah, so it makes a nice pair of nice change. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's horrible. So if we can just st stick to questions not about my underwear, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, so anybody got any questions? Can be about Ali's trousers or history or anything. Yes. How did John die by eating peaches? Good point. That's a good question. I think it was his... Um, his general health situation at the time, I think, because he was probably suffering from dysentery, and probably the dysentery maybe had a bit more to do with it than just the peaches. But I think that perhaps in his weakened state, having a bit too much and gorging on the food, and I guess fruit has a certain can have a certain effect say, yeah. on the diet. So perhaps if he was already suffering from dysentery, it was maybe just a well, I don't want to think of a metaphor for it, but maybe it pushed him <laughs> a bit too far. <laughs> Given that Richard yeah. III had no children, was the Plantagenet dynasty not going to end anyway, regardless of the Battle of Bosworth? And if he had died, who would have been his successor? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, would it not have been in the end of the Plantagenet dynasty if Richard just died of natural causes? I suppose because he was still quite young. I imagine that had he won at Bosworth and his wife was dead at this point, that he would have intended to have remarried and produced some heirs. But if that hadn't happened, um, that's a good question because his brother Clarence had children who were still alive. The complexity there is that because Clarence had been declared a traitor, that technically meant that his children, therefore, would have lost their claim to the throne. There, there were still people who had who were descended from, because Edward III was the main monarch that had lots and lots of people, and even Henry VII was descended from uh, Edward III, even though you might not strictly call him a Plantagenet. Um, I'm not sure who strictly in primogeniture was next had Richard died. I don't think that he had designated an heir going into the battle, so I think he was probably planning to have more children. Um, I'm trying to think, during the Tudor reign, some of the people that caused him problems, the Dillapoles, I think, um, were certainly some of the main rivals for the Tudors that claimed that they'd got a stronger claim to the throne. So perhaps it would have been that side of the family. But it would have been quite uncertain if, you know, if Richard had won the battle and then died straight afterwards, it would have been a bit of a free-for-all, possibly. That's a great question. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to look into that. That's a good one. I want to know that now. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Any other... Yes. What was going on with Richard the Third trying to marry his niece? Surely that would have been against the law. Did he really mean to do it? Because maybe it was just a way of putting off Henry Tudor from trying to marry her. 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably because ultimately Henry Tudor does marry her and that's how Henry Tudor strengthens up his regime by marrying into the Yorkist royal family that's actually got a much better claim to the throne than he does and that's the marrying of Yorkist and Lancaster. So perhaps it was a way of seeing that off. Perhaps if he was um, being an ultra Machiavellian evil genius, maybe he wanted to in some way taint Elizabeth of York's reputation so that Henry then maybe wouldn't want to marry her and it would spoil that sort of thing. I mean, he does deny that he's planning to marry her, to be fair to him, so I guess he wasn't planning to get away with it, he would say. I wouldn't put it past him, though. <laughs> he, uh, that period, that, that year, he was up to all sorts, wasn't he? Hmm. I mean, I what he said, really. But I suppose also, not. because um, Elizabeth uh, Woodville, the mother, had agreed to return to court and with her daughters, perhaps having you know, being accused of murdering the nephews. Maybe he was trying to show a bit more goodwill towards the daughters and just went maybe a little bit too far for <laughs> some people's comfort. <laughs> but I suspect he probably wouldn't actually have married her, but whether or not he showed interest, we'll mm. never know, I suppose. Mm. Any other Anyone? questions? Oh, oh, two at the same time, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question about uh, Rex Factor in general. Mm. Um, and this question might contain a couple of spoilers, so if you're not fully. <laughs> I, I reckon so, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so obviously in Rex Factor, you, you, you um, rate all the kings and queens by certain factors, and then at the end, you also give the Rex Factor, and the Rex Factor is actually independent of the factors. Yeah. However, the winner, this is a spoiler, but the <laughs> series did get the highest score. Yeah. So, to what extent would you say your show is actually a successful step towards creating like, an algorithm that <laughs> would do history for The general question about Rex Factor, given that we are rating all the kings and queens on a scoring system, and in both series the winner has been the one with the highest score, do we think that we have uncovered the perfect algorithm for identifying the best kings and queens? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we've yeah. I suppose certainly you with the second series, you were seeing it as a bit dull. The fact that the top scoring monarch won, but yeah, maybe that means that actually we've cracked the code to yeah working I, it out. That that sort of was the the when we started the point that we were having a um, a chat at work about which king was best, which was finally settled in Bristol, and it was uh, Edward the first. Um, over Henry VIII, <laughs> but that was what started it, and we thought there, uh, there's got to be a way we can look at raw figures and work this out. But then we were coming up with the 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 um, idea of this uh, this bit that sits above those figures would be the Rex factor. So it's sort of I in my mind twofold that we want to be able to have them rateable, so you could sort of do a top trumps type thing, and yeah, it does the history bit for you. But some of them. Uh, I just have that star quality that would you'd be you'd be able to play in that top trump scenario. Say no, he's he's got the Rex factor, and I think if you if you score really highly, that's sort of inevitable that you end you you've got this certain something. But similarly, there are ones that didn't score well that had the Rex factor. So hopefully that that can sit above the the figures and they can still work well. I suppose also going to that is, I guess, like if we were to go back through all of the monarchs, because when we do each, we don't, you know, at the start of the series think, right, well, let's do our scores for all of the monarchs and then do the episodes. We score with each one. So potentially some of them you might look back and think, well, this guy's got yeah. 
12 and this guy's got 14, but this guy that got 12 did actually quite a bit more than the other guy. So mm. I don't know, would they... I still feel like Henry II would probably be at the top, although I think if Ali knew that he only had to find three more points to get Edward I there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's really fortunate, isn't it, that it was blind like that? I mean, if we were to do some cards, I think we might have to go back and sort of... Because we were finding our feet with a lot of the early ones as to what really great battliness looked like, or and so... But we found a level quite quickly. Mm. But I think we might need to revisit some Saxons, some early ones. It'd be interesting if we could sort of go back in time and make a different monarch have the top score and whether the people listening would think, well, no, I still think Henry II was best. Or if they think, well, this guy did get the top score, so mm. I think I'm probably mm. going to vote for him. It'll be interesting to see with the third series when we do the consorts of England whether or not, um, yeah, again, the winner comes out on top because we have it every single time and that definitely suggests something's going on and whether it's us leading... <laughs> The voters, or actually, just we found the perfect, yeah, the perfect equation for yeah. who's the best monarch. It's unlikely it came since we came up with it in the um, uh, the Golden Fleece in Chelmsford, <laughs> but you know maybe. So there was another question. Do you prefer um, Did you prefer the more modern monarchs where there was more information available or the earlier monarchs where you had fun stories like John of Forden? <laughs> uh, John of Forden was definitely a fun addition to have when you didn't have to worry about an actual proper set of facts that could disprove all of his tall tales. I think from my perspective when doing the research I prefer the early ones because it doesn't take anywhere near as long as when there's mm. hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh -huh. Hence, there was never likely to be a five-episode special on Ayeth, whereas That's Queen... One for each word, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, <yeah. laughs> Whereas Queen Victoria, it took quite a long time for me to get through that and indeed for Ali to oh, get terrible. through the episodes. Yeah, I, for me, I th think there's a sweet spot um, where I, I really like it when you can see the actual person. So post-Renaissance ones are, are great because you can really... Get, build up an idea of their person, a character in your head. Um, but Saxon ones were great because I think they're so unknown compared to post-1066 ones. And the, the world was so different and the stories seem unbelievable. Uh, but I can't... The modern ones... Graham, Graham's dissertation was... Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but on uh, <laughs> interwar prime ministers, was it, or...? Something mm, no, but <laughs> right it wasn't period. too far off. Yeah, right. It was li yeah liberals in 1924. So George V was the only one that I technically had actually some kind of expertise to comment upon. But it does mean that you knew an awful lot about the real politics of the period rather than the monarchs. Yeah. And I think that was the, when yeah when, so when prime ministers become the most significant figure um, or the parties. I, I like those slightly less than when actually you had a monarch whose um, idiosyncrasies can have such a massive impact. And, you know, if you've got someone who's really fun, you tend to have a really fun sort of uh, episode. Uh, whereas, yeah. So there is a sweet spot, I think, in the, uh, in the whole Rex Factor period. Do you have a preference in terms of, like, listening episodes-wise, whether, like, the early ones or the later ones or middle ones? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, I think, in the uh, the playoff final for the Scots that Constantine II 
um, ended up coming second in the grand final, which I thought was quite impressive for someone that I imagine was probably the least famous of all the ones. And I did wonder whether that was because when there wasn't as much information, if you condense it, it can't really get condensed any more than it already was. So it actually just becomes this list of really impressive achievements. Whereas when you take like Robert the Bruce and you've got all these amazing epic battles, but actually if you just have to shrink them down to a few bullet points, then it maybe looks a little bit one-dimensional and not quite interesting. You sometimes lose the, lose the flavour of the rain. So sometimes actually those earlier ones, if you've got enough to fill a good episode, but not so much that you're overwhelmed with detail. That's maybe the best mm. balance because you can fill in a lot of the gaps and assume that good and fun things were going on. I just like it because Graham knows the bits that will make a good po- podcast, the, the fun bits. Uh, and when there's so much detail, there's so much for him to fit in that I, I you know, you you found the right balance. But um, yeah, there's there's always room for Edred sucking his meat instead of you know and then the 1832 great reform act <laughs> which you know some people like it's just um it's just you know not me although equally if there's good scandal like edward the seventh was one of the later monarchs yeah and he had an true. awful lot of fun shenanigans he got up right. to. yeah true so when you do have that detail and that kind of character it's yeah. quite fun yeah any other? Yes, hello, it's top. Obviously, before you did at the start of the series, we had our favourite monarchs, but which monarchs have we come to be most impressed by as the series went on? Ooh. Yeah, because I do feel actually in the first series that we both almost kind of took on new favourites mm. to a certain extent. Yeah, Charles was instantly a favorite but i th- i just loved william the fourth and third i do mean william the fourth don't i pineapple head yes pineapple head uh, pineapple <laughs> I, was, I couldn't really commit to answering that one <laughs> until you give me some detail you know pineapple head uh pineapple head and penguin i just love them they're so lovely um i think i just really like the monarchs that are, you could just feel that you'd really get on with them they're just nice blokes and that didn't make them weak or it didn't make them boring. They were still eccentric and they're just such characters. And if, as long as they were characters and didn't start uh, slaying their wives, then um, <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> I think probably for me, and Ali will roll his eyes in anticipation of what we're doing tomorrow night, but probably Alfred actually was the one that I really took to just because I'd, I'd never done the Saxons before other than... Um, because we're from Essex, and in 1991 we had a millennial celebration of the Battle of Malden, which Ali and I both went to the reenactment, but didn't know each other at the time. Mm. But otherwise, I never knew anything about the Saxons at all. And then finding Alfred, this guy that actually puts the country together, defeats the Vikings, does all of these amazing reforms, starts the process of the country coming together. I just really, really enjoyed learning about that, and thought it was, yeah, just really impressive. It's almost as close as you get to a real life King Arthur. Somehow, so I think Alfred for me was, which is weird because I didn't enjoy him, and yet often call him Arthur instead of Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why I didn't enjoy him. Well, you did initially, and then at some point, for some reason, you decided it was muddy and you didn't like it anymore. Yeah, mud comes up in my mind when I think of him. <laughs> oh no, no, it was the turning point with Bernard Cornwell's books, mm. where he's a bit drippy, a bit too pious. Yeah, a bit too pious. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So a hand up that came. Yes. 
Would we make Rex Factor top trumps? Ooh, that is a good question. I think we would quite like to. I would love it. Yeah. I, I mean, we went when we did that premiere at Leicester. Um, I bought. I got quite um, ridiculously excited about the fact that they sold Richard the Third top trumps, and yet I promised myself I wouldn't buy, the, uh, wouldn't play with them until this tour, and uh, we could in the hotel, um, and forgot them. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would absolutely love it. Given a given a packet of top trumps, I'm very very happy. Like uh, that's pretty much how I learnt about sharks, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, what other ones did I have as a kid? Sharks, uh, castles. Obviously. Obviously, yeah. Uh, they're just brilliant. If we were given the chance, I absolutely would. But we might have to look at the scoring. Yeah, we, yeah, we might revisit some of the scores, some of them that seem a bit too high or some of them that seem a bit too low. Mm. But yeah, that would definitely be fun to do. I'm not sure whether we could necessarily call it top trumps, depending on... no whether or not they come running to us for a franchise deal. Yeah. Maybe they will. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's hope. Someone sent us, actually, um, like an idea for an alternative way of playing Top Trumps, but with the Rex Factor cards. Oh, yeah. So he sent us, like, the whole pack, and he sort of... He didn't do any, like, graphical designs, but he just sent all the cards, all the scores, and then had quite a fun game for doing it. We actually need to do it sometime, don't we? We did say we'd do and it. Play it. And he sent a picture of him playing it with his friends. Yeah. And it looked like they're having fun. So, yeah, great. <laughs> and we do now have somebody that can do actual proper designs now that we've got yeah. the monarchs with the headphone things. I think once we've figured out how to do the Saxons. Yeah. That's the real trouble with the branding, wasn't it? That, that um, well, that Edward looked so crazy was, I'm sure that's about five or six Edwards I've got in now. But he looked so absolutely bizarre. Um, and anyone pre the really uh, memorable Henry VIII Holbein one, you can't be sure who you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So we might, um, so maybe work with Tin Mouse Vix. They're good at making mm. some cartoons. Don't know. There's, a, there's some things to iron out, but we'd definitely yeah. look at a way of doing it. Yeah, definitely. Any other listeners there? No, good. Right. Well, I'm going to go <laughs> and have a drink and sell some T-shirts. And please do uh, come and chat to us and ask questions that you, you didn't want to ask in public. And... There's a lot of food here that needs eating up. <laughs> so, uh, nervous energy perhaps uh, stopped us eating the olives. Actually, no, the olives were never going to get eaten. Also the fact that we were just sort of crouched down in, yeah. in the backyard. Yeah, I said to Graham, I felt like a fox because we're sitting there amongst all the debris. Just going, nom, nom, nom. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so have some grapes. Come and say hello and um, hope to see you all again soon. And thank, just so quickly, thanks so much to Tom and Kane for looking after us tonight. It's been really great being here. Thank you all so much for coming. We've yeah. really enjoyed it. And uh, yes, come up and say hello. Thank you very much. Cheerio. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 